I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. You're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Richard Bausch. He's the author of 13 novels and eight collections of short stories. He's been published everywhere, The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, Narrative, and many, many more. He's been awarded a Guggenheim and has won too many awards to mention here. He's currently a professor at Chapman University in Orange, California. Visit his website at richardbausch.com to read more about him. On the show, we talked about his current novel, Playhouse. We talked about point of view. We talked about not staying in your lane, what he does when he hits a wall, and what's most useful to writers who want to get better. And Don't we all want to get better? But before we bring him on, a quick reminder about Patreon. If you've been listening for a while and have found our interviews useful at all, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Consider becoming a supporter. Any amount at all helps us to continue doing what we're doing. And leave a show review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help new listeners find the show. And now for my talk with Richard Bausch. Richard, I'm so glad you could be with me today to talk about Playhouse. Um, I wonder if you'd begin by talking about the book and how it came about. Um, The book actually began as a short story. Um, Long ago, I was still living in Memphis. And um, it was called for a while Pulse. Um, For a little while, it was called... um, BPM for beats per minute. I mean, it's absurd how it started like that. And then I I left at it. Finally, wasn't working as a story. And then uh, I started another thing I thought was another book, um, which is the story of Malcolm and um, his niece. And uh, then as I kept going with it, this thing that I saw at Carter Baron Amphitheater many years ago. Um, um, King Lear with Cordelia played as being mute and deaf and having to sign her lines in the pool saying them. And I thought it was just very strange and I didn't, there was someone stage right, um, house right, signing the whole play. And um, I just thought, I don't know, it, it seemed to put all of the actors at such a terrible disadvantage trying to get through the stuff. And where does the fool go? He's the one saying the lines. And I knew I'd write about that. And one day, shortly after my uh, book of stories came out, Living in the Weather of the World, I started back on that story that I was calling Pulse. And the, the Lear thing came in. And then pretty soon I was embarked on what became Playhouse. I was calling it Glorious for a long time, a couple of years anyway, working on a novel called Glorious. 
and it ended up as Playhouse in the last chapter is both glorious. But that's what happened, and it just went through so many different um, permutations and you know false starts, false roads, failures, bringing it back, starting over again, and all of that. It took it was one of the more difficult thing, ones I've ever done. You, you'd think my novel "Hello to the Cannibals," which involves describing the lives of two women separated by a hundred years, one of them an actual historical person, Mary Kingsley, that that would be uh, the thing I would say probably was the most difficult, but it wasn't. That, that was, I mean, it was long, five years of work, and it was, I remember saying, you know, if I ever tell you I'm going to write a historical novel, you're going to shoot me because, you know, <laughs> I haven't even, she's not even at the Canary Islands yet, and it's 400 pages. It ended up being a thousand pages long. So, uh, but I'm very proud of that particular novel, and I'm proud of this one. And, uh, maybe one there, but this was the most difficult. Is maybe Mr. Field's daughter was more difficult, but this was hard. It wasn't, uh, there were times when I was um, wondering if I should even continue with it first couple of years work on it. Um, but I don't know, finally it settled into being what it ended up being and then I could go through it and really work the sentences and you know make sure all the senses are involved and do all that crap stuff that we do that you well know, of course. And, um, and that part's fun. So the last year and a half working on it was was a lot of fun. So I remember a story you told about a novel that you set on fire and to get rid of. And um, so, so obviously you haven't, like everything you write, you haven't published because there is that one that you set on fire at least, at least one. So what kept you involved with this one? Like, why did you know this had to be completed and and you had to stay with it however long it took i think that it was just making a pressure to be written and i've always loved lear so much that play um i know great gouts of it by heart um and ha having written this novel i know even more um passages and speeches from it I just love it um and i love the stunning audacity of it. And the first night that play was premiered in the theater, in the audience was a very nervous King James, only days past the failed gunpowder plot, the whole Guy Fawkes business. And to have in your play the line, there thou mightst observe the great image of authority, a dog's obeyed in office, I just can't imagine. <laughs> What, you know, the actors must have been just trembling in their socks, you know, their king is out there and he's not nervous and rightly so. <laughs> um, so, but I've always loved it. Uh, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Shapiro called The Year of Lear that's a lot of fun to read and uh, about what was going on when Lear was written. And, uh, and I love everything Shakespeare. I mean, 
you know, to me, he's the number one all-time champion writer. There's nobody ever been better. And um, somebody said, well, things evolve. And I said, yeah, well, we're not going to evolve past Billy because <laughs> everything's there, you know. You can't get better than than the riches of, uh, you know, magnificent expression and truth in those plays and in the poems. So I think that might have been why. And and you said it started as a short story. So yeah, and I didn't. It wasn't it... about that. Wasn't about Lear. That was about um, one of the first scenes of the book was um, the scene in the hospital mm -hmm. with um, Thaddeus. You know, Thaddeus with his fast heart, right? And this doctor saying, "I've had this for ten years." And then collapsing. Right. <laughs> the uh, the actual um, how that came about was I had Lisa and and I, my wife Lisa and I, you know Lisa of course, but um, for the listeners, my wife Lisa is Lisa Cupolo. That um, Barbara did a great job speaking with and interviewing a few weeks back. Yes. Um, uh, we we got to this into this kind of club where you take you only eat soy because <laughs> i wanted to lose weight fast i was up at about 200 and, well then i was about 199 or 200 and i wanted to lose it back i i had lost a whole lot of weight and got to 187 and then i had gained like 10 pounds i wanted to lose it fast and i was taking this stuff and it gave soy in that amount makes my heart race but i didn't know this I just suddenly had this racing heart and um this doctor actually said that to me he said uh, you have what's mild you have a a uh, bundle branch block in your left ventricle and i said block and he said no no it's not that kind of thing it's electrical just like it is in the novel exactly the way it's really exactly what was said but he went, he said, I've had it for 10 years and went on past the curtain. And me, with my catastrophic imagination, imagined what if he collapsed right now, just <laughs> fell over, you know, what would that do? And then I started thinking to write it, how funny that would be. And I wrote the scene. I called Brother Bobby and read him the scene just because I knew it would make him laugh. We don't normally, didn't normally do that kind of thing. Call each other with scene. But I said, this is going to make you laugh. I think this is funny. And um, um, so that's that. I didn't know I was going to write anything about Lear, and I just went in there with Thaddeus. So Thaddeus had this heart problem, and and it always fascinates me about the inside of a marriage when one party knows the other party is thinking of leaving. And um, you know, there's that great Raymond Carver story called "The Student's Wife," where she knows he's leaving, and he doesn't even know it yet. And she can see it where she, at the very end of the story, you know, he says she had seen many sunrises, but she never dreamed she would ever see a sunrise as terrible as this one was. And mm -hmm. He goes and kneels by the bed and says, Lord God, will you help us? Will you help us? That's such a great story. So anyway, that, that was the one that I burned. You know, there's 13 crates of stuff that... Uh, <laughs> 
at uh, Duke University, you know, that that some poor person probably no more would had to collate or try to go through. Um, but in there are five different book length manuscripts that just didn't make it. Hmm. They weren't they weren't ready. The one I burned was before I knew the stuff had value. You could sell it to a university. <laughs> so it was a stupid thing to do. But the, these five that are in these crates, like they didn't make it according to whom? You or an agent, a publisher? No, me, me. I, I could see they were dead. It wasn't, they were inert. And... Um, and so I just, you know, I boxed them all up and Duke bought them. Um, they even have, you know, good sounding premises. One is about a woman who, but it's fairly shopworn when you think about it. A woman who after her husband's death discovers that he had a double life. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably been done about a hundred times. Um, another one is about a, woman who idolized her much older brother and he shows up needing her to nurse him out of alcoholism and that that was called spirits that that was one i burned that's the one <laughs> i had about 500 pages of it and i think you i might have told you about how standing there watching the pages burn how they burn from the out in and then go up and I was going that's not such a bad line oh man maybe I shouldn't be doing this but uh so then what do you say to students or writers you know who feel like they've written something that is never going to be published and all that time was wasted I tell them that is none of it is ever wasted because each time you do it you get slightly better it's just like learning how to play piano. I mean, I or guitar. I play guitar and I write songs. I used to write. I've written maybe I don't know, 75 or 80 songs over the years. I remember how to play two of them, which tells me that they're the only two that are worth anything. Um, so a lot of it's all expression. Mm -hmm. Some of it works and some of it doesn't. To give up early, that's the thing. None of these things that I finally said, this isn't going to do it. Um, I'm talking about, in each case, months, and maybe even a couple of years of work, and then saying, it's just not going to do it. And something mm -hmm. else comes along. You know, I mean, I remember once saying, whatever I had to let me write those first two books is gone, because mm -hmm. uh, I just couldn't. I had sentence fever, which is horrible. And it's, it's our own creation, but where every sentence looks dead and and even words. I remember writing the word raw and thinking that's not a word, that's a noise. <laughs> I had to look it up, you know? So. Yeah. Well, you have a zillion short stories published. You're considered a master of the form. You have more than a dozen novels, right? You have, is this the 13th novel? 13th novel, yeah. So which do you prefer? Do you feel that you're better at one or the other? And do you prefer one over the other? Or does it depend on, on the story and, and finding the right context for the content? I mean, how do you, how do you feel about 
stories versus novels for you? I think it's, I think of it now as it's all, it's all about expression and expression takes whatever shape it takes. And like I'm working on a story right now that was called Marauders, but now I'm thinking of calling it um, The Guests. And it's, it's four elderly men in the nursing home and uh, the lady they talk to and their families, whoever comes to visit. And I don't know where it's gonna go or what it's gonna end up being. I'm thinking it might be a long story since there's four of them, but I just don't know until it tells me. I said glibly in a Publishers Weekly interview 29, 28 years ago now, more than that, 1990, that's what? Is that 37 years? We're 27. Well, 90 to 2023. 33. 33 years ago. See, I didn't study <laughs> math. <laughs> um, well, and 33 years ago, I said glibly, I was at Wesleyan College at their conference, and Publishers mm -hmm. Weekly came over to interview me because I was publishing The Fireman's Wife. And um, I said, writing stories is a source of profound um, recreation for me because I was writing Mr. Field's Daughter, which was my fourth novel. I was having a hell of a time with it. It just wasn't my, it was, I was having trouble keeping it from being a, simply an exercise of cold skill. My heart wasn't involved and I couldn't figure it out or find out why. And it was just driving me bats. And so I, I just said this thing that stories were a profound recreation and she printed it as me saying, I'd much rather write stories. She even said, I had the feeling he writes his stories so he can, he, he writes his novels so he can, you know, have time to write his stories, which is just so far from true. Um, and I have had to tell people over the years you know, I love my stories and I'm very proud of them, but if you're only reading the stories, you're missing a lot, I humbly aver. There's a whole lot of good stuff in the novels. And um, so anyway, no, I don't have a preference now. I've been for years now, for many years now, over 20 years, just thinking, thinking of it as expression. It's just all expression. Hmm. And, um, and sometimes I'll write a poem just because I feel like doing it, you know. They're not any good, but you know, just to keep keep the uh, keep the fingers limb like, like playing piano, you know, finger exercises. Yeah. And I I don't mean to denigrate denigrate wouldn't be the I don't mean to uh, downplay the poetry to me is the center of the language, and I'd love to be able to write it the way say Ted Kuzer does or C.K. Williams did or you know. Um, so many great friends, Mark Strand and others did. God, I'd love to be able to write poems like that. I write verses. And uh, so, I mean, you know, it provides some sense of having worked. You know, Barbara, I used to sit in a chair and look into the sound hole of the guitar and play A minor and E over and over again for an hour making up a stupid song. And then I could tell myself that I had done something creative that day. 
<laughs> and uh, no, just bad denial. Were you a writer as a kid? No, I was quasi-literate as a kid. I didn't get through school very well. I had dyslexia, but I don't, I think they didn't really have a name for it back then. They just thought I was not applying myself. I can't tell you how many times I remember teachers saying to my parents, if, you know, Robert and Richard would only apply themselves, there's no telling what they could do. But I was working, man. I wanted to say, I'm working my butt off over here, you know? <laughs> uh, I just didn't get it. So it wasn't until fairly late. I remember when I was 17, I played basketball all year. I don't think I read one thing all year. And I remember I found myself being less expressive just talking around. And so I started reading, thinking it must be that I'm not reading anything. I don't really have anything to talk about. And then I got hooked, really. I was 17, I started reading poems. That's when I first read Shakespeare. Um, I had a great teacher named Mrs. Risen in high school who made us read Macbeth mm -hmm. and made us memorize a passage from it. And I just remember them being stunned at the available truth in the lines, you know. I'd just never encountered anything like that before. And um, that applied to how I was living my life. That was the thing that was so amazing. The thing I had to memorize was, um, Hark me thought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more, Macbeth doesn't murder sleep. And then the description of sleep, my God, that's what it is. Just like that. Yes, the death of each day's life. Sweet labor's balm. Like, damn. So. And then what? Then how, how did the writing happen? Like, how did you find your way to writing? I was imitating Whitman. Um, I was reading the poem, the poets. I had a book. I still have it. In fact, it's over there in, the, in my stand. It's a um, treasury of great poems, and it's a Louis Untermeyer's anthology. And I was reading about the poets and reading the poems, and um, started imitating them. Dylan had happened, and I was looking at the words. On the backs of the albums, um, I remember um, finding an Odetta album with the lyrics on the back, and Mr. Tambourine Man was one of the songs, and I admired the rhymes, and um, so I just, and I admired Ginsberg. I read him because Dylan was reading him, and then Kennedy got killed, and, and uh, they said he read War and Peace, so I thought, I'm going to. I remember thinking I'm going to go into politics. And um, so I went and got War and Peace. And that really was the thing, the watershed that started it all because it led me to everything else. Hmm. I've read that book five times now. In fact, I'm always reading in it like a priest reading his office. He and Chekhov, I love them both so much. And um, there's this marvelous funny thing where I think it was Henry, no. Yeah, it might have been Henry Miller talking to Ezra Pound about the Russians. And Pound said, tell you the truth there, Henry, I never read the Russians. 
Uh, Ezra Pound didn't read the Russians. Good Lord. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I sure did. I even read the the modern Russians, man. You know, like Grossman and and I became friends with Vasily Aksyanov. Great writer. He's gone now. God, what a great writer he was. And um, I got to teach with him at George Mason. Wonderful writer. Well, I would love to hear you read from Playhouse. Will you do that? Yeah. Let me first do the context deal here. Okay. Okay, we know we, the visiting director wants Cordelia played as deaf and mute. She is to sign her lines and the fool is to say them and the fool signs the lines to her that the others speak. This scene involves one of the three main characters, Claudette, who's going to play um, uh, Reagan. No, uh, Goneril. After the first successful run-through, Claudette's ex-husband, a man with alcohol drug problems, who was fired from the company four years earlier and has come back after failing in Hollywood, has managed to get a job as a custodian at the theater and is on the brink of a bad nervous breakdown. She has heard that he was at the run-through, hanging back in the rear, so she's walked back up to the theater to see him. She's wearing a T-shirt with the phrase, I am not jejun, across the front. Now, I have to read this in a falsetto. I hope that's, that's all right. All right. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I love that, that dubious smile. That was perfect. That's all right. <laughs> okay. Claudette crossed the newly finished lobby and stepped into the auditorium. And she saw him moving along the edge of the stage with a push broom sweeping, walking low to himself. She had a strong impulse to turn and make her way out. But finding herself drawn toward him, she started down the long passage of shallow steps to where he was. Perhaps there was curiosity or even a measure of nostalgia since he was reciting lines very low, the way he used to, and she would wake in the nights and hear him moving through the rooms of the house they lived in then, when they were new and there were excitements, and they were always together, so accustomed to their good fortune that each day was full of promise and they were two gifted young artists on the rise. He was pushing the broom along, muttering, so loving to my mother that he might not fatigue the winds of heaven, visit her face too roughly, heaven and earth must I remember. Then he saw her and stopped, dropping the broom with a dramatic faltering half step back. Come to see me in my humiliation. No, she managed. He lit a cigarette. It's come to this, huh? He moved to the edge of the stage, stooped and offered the cigarette to her. She reached up and took it, drew on it, and blew the smoke as she passed it back. He went to stage right and came down, and instead of going over to her, sat in one of the seats. She sat three seats away. He blew smoke. Pretty sorry sight, huh? No. I was drunk the other day. I know. You must have a weakness for men with alcohol trouble. She said nothing. I was just being Hamlet, did you hear? I heard. Hamlet pushing a broom. Imagine, a director could use it. Hamlet believing himself to be trying to clean up the mess of the whole thing. Sweeping away the ghost. He drew on the cigarette and sighed the smoke. The quiet went on. He took another draw, blew it out, and offered her another drag. No thanks. He smoked, tapping his knee as if keeping some inner rhythm. 
then stopped. He turned his head to look straight at her and recited Hamlet's words to Ophelia. I did love you once. After a pause, she said the answering line. Indeed, my lord, you made me believe so. You should not have believed me, for virtue cannot so inoculate our old stock that we shall relish of it. I loved you not. I was the more deceived. He sighed, smoked, paused, and then, get thee to a nunnery. Why? He nodded. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? I am indifferent, honest. Is that it? Go thy ways to a nunnery, and, and what? She shook her head to say she couldn't call it up. She could, but she lacked the will. He took a long draw this time. She saw the brightened coal. Then, shit, you win. Jeffrey, I don't remember it either, really. He sank down farther in the seat. I can give you most of Lear, she said. Now, I'm lost, he said. But you're taking hold. I was talking about the lines, about Hamlet, the lines. Oh, sorry. But you are taking hold, right? He looked at her then turned to blow smoke the other way. He held a cigarette tight between his index finger and thumb. He always tried to put a positive spin on everything. She waited. Used to make me want to kick something out from under you. Well, sorry, he offered a drag on the cigarette again, and she shook her head. You were there at the run-through today, she said. Yeah, everybody did great. Made me miss it a little. And he grumbled low, and you're with that pedophile alcoholic. She said nothing but put her hands on the seat arms, thinking to rise and leave him there. Sorry, I can't. Ugh, sorry, shit. Wait, makes no difference now. I'm sorry. It's your life. He's probably a nice pedophile alcoholic. Well, you take care, she said. No, really, wait, I'm sorry, okay? I don't want you having any more bad feelings than you already have about me, and let's just remember the good days. She watched him smoke the cigarette. Those few times, he added with a smirk. Let's not argue. No, right, it's your life now. She nodded, but he was looking at the smoke trailing out of his mouth. And this, he said, indicating the large space where they were seated, is now my life. He blew the smoke, concentrating on it again, then looked at her and smiled. I like your T-shirt. Don't remember where I got it. What does J. June mean? I think it means something like dull. Well, I get it. You're not dull. Funny you feel the need to announce it. I thought it was funny. It's funny, I guess. I'd better get going. Yeah, you're going to be all right, Jeffrey. Oh, of course. He blew three perfect smoke rings, each inside the, re the preceding one. You know what I remember most about us? Being on stage together? Nah, stage. Who needs that? He made a scoffing sound. That's all gone. There's nothing that says you can't bring it back. It would be nice if you could avoid the inspirational speeches with me, he said. I'm only saying the truth. Nevertheless. You used to talk about it, Jeffrey, our hunger for it. He shrugged. Not really hungry anymore. Isn't that curious? Not even slightly hungry. Just kind of a kind of peaceful sense of, uh, you know, this is the given. Well, maybe that's a good thing. Could be. Peace, taking it all in stride, sort of. Sure. He looked at her. I asked you something. I asked if you know what I remember most. All right. She said, what do you remember most? Our morning walks, he shook his head, evidently picturing everything. Down High Point Terrace and across Walnut Grove, going by those huge fancy houses around the Galloway Golf Course, the two of us talking or saying lines, and in town with the farmer's market and strolling around the loop and riding a trolley after lunch at Bluefin, looking at all the people. When I was in L.A., I had dreams about it. 
Did I ever tell you on the phone I had dreams about it? No. Right. I was too busy being my witty self. She was silent. I've always been pissed off. You know what? But I'm not anymore. Yes, she said. Good. From being a little kid riding around in my father's car while he made calls. A collector's son. Repossession Bill USA. I saw a whole lot of people getting shit taken away from them. And he's the whole time, you know, holding forth from his books. All that learning and it didn't help him a little bit. She nodded. I guess we can stop there. Thank you so much. Wow. So Playhouse um, has three points of view, right? It's Thaddeus, mm -hmm. Malcolm, and Claudette. How did you decide on on those three? Um, it wasn't it wasn't actually very conscious a decision. Malcolm came into it, and I was writing about Thaddeus and Claudette. And um, remember, I wrote the first part of Malcolm's story when I was in Edale in England, and um, in two thousand fifteen. The summer and um that first those first lines when you see them I haven't really they're almost exactly the way they were when I first wrote them but I didn't know he was going to be in this novel um in fact the novel wasn't really started as a novel yet I was still thinking about a novella called Pulse about Thaddeus his name was different then too I named uh, I named Thaddeus um, after my my uh, grandfather on my mother's side. And I have a picture of him here. I want you to see it because it is really something. This guy uh, was in the Irish Republican Army, and um, he saw someone recognize him in a pub. And he followed him out into the alley and killed him. And then ran away to um, get on a boat and come to America where he met Minnie Roddy, who was from a wealthy family. And uh, there he is. You can see that. Mm. That's Thaddeus. That's Thaddeus. Mm. Thaddeus Roddy, um, Minnie's last name was um, can't remember now. Minnie, I always called her Minnie Roddy. She was my great grandmother. Hmm. Um, yeah, so he was my great grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he made the Washington newspapers one day when a man was caught between two train cars and he, in a kind of superhuman way, pushed the cars apart and rescued the guy. Mm. And so he was like a hero here. Anyway, I don't know why. Oh, so I thought I'm going to name him Thaddeus after, the, after my great grandfather. So names, you know, names are important, right? I mean, do you, do you, 
I don't know what the right, I'm not, not struggle, but are you always after the right name for a character? I mean, are names really important to you? Oh yeah. And in fact, I, uh, um, I, um, have a novel I'm working on now called Chopin's Ghost and then major character's name is Michael and uh, the major character in uh, before, during, after his name is Michael Falk, Michael Falk and this, this kid named Michael and I, I want to keep it because um, uh, he, his aunt calls him her little knight of the mournful countenance and that, you know his and talks to him about this great writer who named Miguel um, Cervantes. So I'm going to keep it in hell with it. But <laughs> I, I don't like having the same names usually, you know, I'm looking for it. And the thing that I love is that you, names have a way of, the name Wilhelmina, I didn't know when I named her Wilhelmina that it, you know, it means um, tender care person, the person who cares for you. So I just thought, wow, and I love that. And um, so I named a character Daphne a long time ago. And the title of the story was, um, no, it doesn't matter. It got me into Iowa. Oh, <laughs> signed D.H. it was. And her name was Daphne and she was painfully shy. And I looked up the, the name after I'd written the story. And uh, it means shy. Daphne means shy and withdrawn. So I trust that. I mean, I trust this sort of impulse thing with names. But I often change the names as I'm going through, you know. Um, I can't remember what Thaddeus's name was, but it wasn't Thaddeus. And then just goofing, I thought, okay, his mother named him Wolfgang Amadeus Thaddeus, you know, mm -hmm. because of her, her, love affair with uh, the, the player, the clarinet player. All that stuff is, is stuff that's just spun out and made up. I love making it all up. And um, when it's going well, it just feels so sweet. And when it's going bad, it feels grudgingly sweet, I guess. <laughs> what do you do when you hit a wall? What do you do when it's not feeling so sweet? I will have sometimes gone to something else and worked on it for a while, like a story or whatever, or another story, or um, sometimes gone to another part of the novel that I'm working on that, that needs work that I know what it needs a little bit or have a better feeling of it. But a lot of times I just keep on going, you know, it's like William Stafford's great advice, lower your standards and keep on going. You can always come back and fix it. You know? So you don't get up and go shopping or. <laughs> I often do that even when it's going well. <laughs> Say, oh, well, today, you know, I got my, used to have an alarm on. It would ring after two hours and I'd say, okay, time to quit. Hmm. Um, but then the time always went up, you know, as I got towards the end, when I was finishing a load of the cannibals, it was. I was working 18 hour days on it. People were bringing me food. Um, I realized when I walked down into the foyer when I finished the last sentence of that book and it was a draft. I still had two more drafts to go, but I didn't know it yet. Um, 
I felt like I'd finally finished it. And I went downstairs and I still see my daughter, Emily, coming into the foyer and saying, finished? Because <laughs> I hadn't been downstairs in more than a month. You know? Work all day on it and then take the laptop to bed and uh, have it moved to the laptop and take the laptop to bed and work on it there. I was doing 18 hours a day on it. And um, I wrote 450 pages that summer. The last 450 pages of that long book. And I didn't know when I finished it that I still had, when I went through it, started through it again, I saw things I had to do. But when you get to that stage, you don't feel it as discouragement. You feel it as inspiration. Oh, I know what this needs, you know, and you can't wait to get it done. It makes energy when it's gone that well, hmm. as I'm sure you know. Well, you know, I was thinking about because I know, I know you and Lisa are busy. I mean, you're busy with family. You have a lot of house guests a lot of the time, and you're so prolific. So, how do, are you working when you? have house guests? I mean, what are you doing? Or do you wait and then just power through when nobody's around? I mean, how are you so prolific? Mm. You know, it always feels as if I'm just getting it half done. I, I mean, like catch as catch can, a little here and a little there. Um, I have to say when I lost Bobby, my, my twin, um, in 2018, I remember saying to people, I've never felt writing as a refuge before. That's what it feels like now, because I was then working all day. And um, the uh, pandemic had happened, so nobody was coming over, and I was just working all day, each day. I wrote two novellas, a complete book of stories, and Playhouse, hmm. all in that you know year and a half. Um, but generally, it's, you know, it's like Mary Lee Settle said to me, once. God, I was lucky to know that woman. What a great writer, too. She said to me, I can still hear it. I said, I, I was having trouble with my third novel. I just, it wasn't coming. I was, had sentence fever, and I was going, I don't, you know, I don't know what the hell's going on. And she said, oh, you just gotta be stupid, Richard. You gotta get stupid again. Read a lot of dumb mystery novels or which I don't do but my light reading is history but she said read a lot of mystery novels or watch a lot of dumb television and movies it'll happen just let it just you know and she said visit it each day let it know you're there and just keep going hmm. and so a lot of times that's sort of the way it feels in the sense that we are busy and we have these things we've got to do but you know I've been pretty fortunate in not needing more than about five or six hours sleep a night. So, you know, I work a lot of times at night when everybody's asleep. Hmm. And when I wake up and can't sleep, I'll get up and work. You will. You won't try to go back to sleep. I do now, but it never works. So I do just say, oh, hell, I'll get up and work, do something, you know. Um, so I don't know, you know, I mean, how much... I got this book of stories and I'm working on another novel. The book's been taken. It'll come out in about 18 months from now. And um, it's called The Fate of Others. And I'm, I'm very proud of it, but I'm working on another story right now. I don't know where the hell that's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about point of view because 
you know, I don't know if what you go through when you are starting a project, are you, is it telling you what point of view it should be in? Do you like, I mean, do you ever write from like omniscient editorial so that you have like complete latitude in whatever you do? Or are you, do you have a favorite point of view? Can you just talk, talk to us for a little bit about point of view? Yeah. Um... I'm ruthless about changing the point of view if it doesn't seem to be working. Um, a lot of times a story will start with a voice and sometimes that continues to be what the story's in, but I'm not at all uh, shy about saying, well, I'm gonna try this another way. Um, and um, it's, I had my, I had sold my first novel and the editor said that there were two sections in first person. He said, would you maybe try those in third? And I went home really upset and angry because he bought the damn thing. I was saying, I'm going to make me rewrite it, God's sake. But I started it, those two sections in the third person and was amazed at how um, much, how liberated I was. I could say something that would, that would, dispel with something that had to be expressed in two pages by a single sentence because I, I could talk about the character instead of having to bring it through the characters what the character can see and say um and so um, there's this great moment in conrad in um uh, outpost of progress and i like to use it as an example of choosing a point of view that allows you to do just this. He's, he's got these two characters and um, one of them is gonna get so paranoid about where they are that he's gonna kill the other one. And he introduces them after he does a dramatic opening of them coming there and being on the island. He just addresses us. And he says they were two completely incapable and incompetent individuals whose existence is rendered possible only by the high organization of civilized crowds. And that sentence in the hands of a less experienced writer, there might be 12 pages of trying to show them being incompetent and incapable, but he sets the context with that one line and then he's free to go on and let, you know, let the story develop so that anything that lets you set that kind of context is a thing that, that is there. And I don't think, we should deny ourselves any of the tools, but uh, you know, I have a novel called Rebel Powers. The whole thing is in first person, but that first person is someone who's looking back so he can see how the arc of the experience fits into his life. But you do, if you have, if you're writing a present tense first person, then dramatical irony comes in. I, I, I don't like Evelyn's boyfriend. He drives that car with a loud radio and the engine's too loud. I don't like it, but she likes him. He's going to buy her abortion. I'm going to get me a red abortion when I grow up. She was crying. She was so happy. I'm going to get me a red abortion when I grow up and play the radio so loud it'll drown him out. Well, the speaker's giving us way more than the speaker knows. Mm -hmm. All that has to do with that level that the reader has to have, knowing enough to turn the page. But it, I let it tell me, I, you know, lots of times I'll start in one point of view. That's a good way, for instance, to untie a knot when you're going, or 
get past a wall. Well, let me try this in another voice and see how it works. You know, hmm. Hmm. it's fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, experimenting. You know, if it's not working, or even if it is working, to see what'll happen if you do this other thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think the just playing is something that writers. I don't know. We don't. We maybe don't do it enough. We yeah. feel like whatever we put down has to be, you know, perfect. And I keep going back to musicians are rehearsing all the time. Mm -hmm. You don't expect it to be anything but rehearsal, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. you know. You're not carving in stone. That's right. the thing I used to say. Look, I say this is language. It's like you're at the edge of a river and the fish are leaping to your hands. And then <laughs> you can make any arrangement you want with those fish, you know. And the other thing is, no matter what you do, you can't ruin it. You right. cannot permanently harm it. Just make it necessary to do it again. Yeah. And it always has been a, a an extremely um, an extremely marvelous form of primitive play. It's it's play. We're playing around with the words, you know. Yesterday on Facebook, somebody said. The difference between everyday, like this was, this is an everyday kind of thing. And every day, we did this every day. It was an everyday kind of thing. And I said, you mean as in, we have a mass shooting every day, so it's become an everyday kind of thing. And, and you're just playing with the words, you know? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for all of us, that's still the, that's the situation. Yeah. Well, you can cut that one out. <laughs> well, we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to talk to you about, well, a lot of things, but probably most important of all the stuff that I haven't talked to you about yet is um, you've taught for a long time, and I'm curious what you have found um, most useful to new writers or any writer wanting to improve? Like, what do you tell them? What do you want them to do? Do you want them to read more? Do you want them to write more? Do you want them to do something that isn't writing an, at all to just like, you know, bring in other stimuli? What do you, what do you do? What do you say to this? Well, the, the answer, if a student says, how do I get better as a writer? The first thing out of my mouth is read, 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 read everything. I can't tell you how often it comes up in a grad class. Grad classes, Barbara, where somebody hasn't read enough to, you know, somebody, for instance, maybe in reinventing the wheel with great fanfare, like, look what I'm doing here. I'm in this person's mind. And I'm saying, well, you know, that's been done since oh, around 1920. And so, you know, you, but he, the person doesn't know it because the person hasn't read enough to know it. And I tell him that I've never met a writer who looking at the work, I was pretty sure it was better than me, who wasn't also better read. Hmm. Didn't have a, lar a large bank of things to draw from here. The brain records absolutely every second of our lives, waking and unwaking. And everything you read, is there, it's lodged there. Um, they have touched parts of the brain and people have quoted entire books and um, it's all there. And so I always thought of it as, 
I mean, I I was lucky that I had an, a really strong appetite for it. Couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I was just, I'm still, I'm reading 12 books at the same time. I just pick up one and put the other, but I'm just continually. But it's also, in a way, filling up the well. There's, the more you read, the more you, that passes through and you come back out writing it. What you write comes through the screen of all that stuff you've exposed yourself to. And you have more to draw in terms of um, verbal resources. How do I make this work? You know, um, then you don't get sentence fever like I had, you know, all those years ago. Well, you know, there is something else I wanted to bring up, and that is, I have your book right here. A few things that I underlined. Um, I wanted to ask you about side characters, and also wanted to ask you about. Um, you're telling details, like you pick the, such perfect details um, for side characters even. So I marked a few on like page 71, you're talking about, you're talking about Jocelyn and you, you say she smiled showing strangely inward turned teeth as if she'd suffered a blow at some point long ago, the edges of them were gray. I thought, like, where did that come from? How did you see that? Are you taking details um, from what you're observing in people and remembering them? Or do you keep journals and write these things down when you see something and you go, I got to use that someday? Because you, throughout the book, you do that. And it's like the hardest thing, I think, one of the hardest things writers do is dealing with side characters, but also just picking those telling details that really show a character to you, right? Instead of long drawn out description, there's telling details. I took that, you know, from Chaucer. Uh, I, I mean, the wife of Bath had a gap in her teeth. Um, and I used to teach Chaucer and I'd say, look what he's doing. This is characterization back in the 14th century. You know? mm -hmm. um, but the telling detail is just one of the, craft kinds of things, you know. Um, Defoe knows enough to say in, in uh, Robinson Crusoe, a pair of shoes floated in on the tide unmatched. It's just a little turn. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's, it's all um, imagined. I see it and then just put it down. What is the distinguishing? But I don't ask myself this. I'm just doing it now. It's almost like um, muscle memory. Um, seeing the person and, and seeing whatever it is that makes that person palpable to the reader. Um, again, you get that from reading a lot of Tolstoy. I want to tell you the details. Tolstoy, stunning. Um, just stunning. And, um, and moments of insight. Natasha, at her first ball, sees the white coats with the epaulets on the sleeves. And he says she was at that pitch of happiness where it is impossible to imagine an ungenerous thought in another person. And you read that and go, oh, my God, I know that feeling. Good Lord, there it is, you know. And so I always wanted, wanted to, even from the start, emulate that kind of vividness. Um, and I'm so glad um, 
that you noted them. That's, you know, you're such a good reader, Barbara. And, uh, you know, I haven't been that fortunate with a lot of readers, <laughs> who, um, especially reviewers. Somebody told me that the New York Times reviewer said that I had had this person trying to do direct a play with Cordelia's being deaf without, are you ready for this? Consulting the deaf community. <laughs> I'm going, holy good Lord almighty. What there do you we are. Think about all that? I mean, what, what do you think about all that where, you know, I mean, do we write, do men write about women? Should women write about men? What do we do about other races and nationalities? I mean, what do you do with that? I've always said that if if they win, the people who say we got to stay in our lanes and only write about our own experience, we're going to have thousands of novels by retired lawyers about retired lawyers. Mm -hmm. And uh, the point is simply one has only to read in the world's literature to see that, you know, this, this is the bogusness of such a, a requirement. The requirement is that the writing be good. And uh, maybe we ought to go back to no name and no picture because, uh, you know, I've written about about easily 50% of the characters in everything I've ever written is women. And I've written from the point of view of a black television repairman at, and in the night season. Um, I've written from the point of view of a 62-year-old priest with a heart problem when I was 39. Um, no, I was 29. And I wrote from the point of view of, of um, uh, a woman when I was 36. And from the point of view of a 75-year-old man in a nursing home when I was 39. It's just imagining. And um, there isn't anything more stupid than the idea that because I'm now a 77-year-old white male, I got to write about 77-year-old white males. It's, it's absurd. Or 30-year-old white males, you know. Well, it's like you said, if, you know, just do it well. Yeah. Do it well, right? I mean, if you, if you take away that wayfaring aspect of it, then there are so many great books you got to take out. We can't have Molly's soliloquy. We can't have Portrait of a Lady. Um, by Mr. James, um, we can't have, you know, any number of great books from the point of view of, of um, the opposite sex or, you know. Right. And so it's just silly. And I hope it's one of those things like Dadaism that has its moment and then passes into the social dung heap where it belongs. Is that too strong? <laughs> no, I was just thinking of Dadaism and I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> oh, gee, I guess we're at the end of our time. This has been a great pleasure. Is there any, any last words or pearls of wisdom or advice for the writers listening? Trust. Trust the activity itself. It'll lead you to places you didn't know you could go. I mean, I really do believe that. You know, and you know it's really going well when it surprises you. Mm -hmm. And when you get to that place reading a story, 
where you say, my God, I've always known that. It's never, never had it expressed before. Um, I guarantee you the writer was just as surprised getting there writing it as you are getting there reading it. Mm -hmm. Robert Frost said it. He said, no surprises for the writer, no surprises for the reader. So just trust it. Good note to end on. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So much, Richard. It was a pleasure. It was fun. <laughs> thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music free on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Thank you.